You are listening to Dave's Daredevil Podcast, Episode 6, in which Daredevil heads to Vermont to face down Death's Head, a villain with ties to Karen Page. Oh, and Matt Murdock is dead. Welcome, friends, to Dave's Daredevil Podcast, the show where I, J. David Weeder, talk all about Marvel's man without fear, Daredevil. While we're here, you may call me Dave. Or if you like, you can call me Perturb, because that's where I'm at this week. See, I'm not a big video game player, but I enjoy sometimes firing up the PS3 now and again. A little uh, next-gen action, if you will. Now, of course, for me, I still lean more on the PS1 or GameCube from time to time, because that's, as the youngins say, my jam. Earlier this week, I got a bug up my butt. I decided to pick up Marvel vs. Capcom 3 against my better judgment. See, I wanted a fighting game. I preferably wanted something with Daredevil in it, but I didn't want to play the Marvel Ultimate Alliance games again. And I was leaning towards Marvel's uh, War of the War of the Gems, the PS1 fighting game, because it was excellent. But I went with Marvel vs. Capcom 3 because I thought there was going to be more to it. What followed was a bunch of weeping and gnashing of teeth. See, that game... At least for me, for my limited skill level, gets really, really hard. I mean, it's like somebody put a ringer into the game. I kid you not. First few rounds are great. They're easy. I'm knocking stuff out of the park. And then gets real. And I got angry. Now, you're asking, what does this have to do with Daredevil? Are you just sharing, Dave? Um, no, actually, this is my thought process. This is why I bring it up on this show. As well, I mean, I am venting my pain. Don't get me wrong. But uh, look at it. I was beaten pre- down pretty handily. And I was rocking a tree of Captain America, Thor, and Iron Man. How do you beat that? But I was really wanting to throw Daredevil in the mix, and I thought he might be a downloadable character or something. He's not in there. He is not in there. I did play a little bit of Marvel Heroes, the online role-playing game. I got to play Daredevil. First time out wasn't very impressive, because it was a bunch of Daredevils waiting to go to Hill's Kitchen. It got better. It was an alright game. However, with this, back on topic, playing Marvel vs. Capcom 3 spurred some thought in me. Because I seemed to remember there was a Daredevil video game at one time, wasn't there? I... Definitely remember the cover to the game. I was convinced that I'd seen ads for it, and I started to doubt myself. Maybe I was wrong. Maybe it came out on PC instead of a platform. Wasn't sure. So, I, and I think some of you are wondering the same thing right now, because I know right now you're thinking, yeah, Dave, I do vaguely remember an image in the back of my mind. We aren't wrong. There were ads for a Daredevil video game. The game itself never came out. It just languished in development hell before finally being scrapped. So it was at a level where ads were being released. You can find, and I did find, some test footage. And the game looked alright. Just not great. But I think with the advent of games like Arkham City, it could work now. It just wasn't the right time. It would have been pretty much mediocre then. And this was late 90s, early 2000s. From what I saw the the footage, there seemed to be a good use of Daredevil's swinging ability in the Billy Club. Uh, several shots where it looked like the, the radar ability was used, kind of like detective mode in Arkham City or Arkham Asylum. Bullseye and Elektra seemed to feature pretty prominently. In fact, Elektra looked like a playable character. But I think this was kind of a blessing that the game never came out because the timing wasn't right. If that game had come out then, it probably would have been on the dusty end of the used game section at bargain prices right now. 
And that means I would have snatched it up and played it instead of getting mad that Chun-Li was making mincemeat out of Captain America. And in what alternate reality does the guy from Ghosts and Goblins take out Thor? Anyway, I will be posting the footage from the aborted game with the show notes this week at Dave's Daredevil Podcast uh, website, daredevilpodcast.com. Or perhaps I'll probably forget until somebody reminds me, but I will get those posted up. Putting that to the side, this week we have an odd issue of Daredevil. Because it features the backdrop of Vermont. Yes, I said Vermont. However, the ending of this issue has a major reveal that will change everything. So, let's look at what happens in Daredevil number 57. Now, I'm going to switch things up this week, and this is a one-off. Normally, I do my little preamble, a little warm-up, a little talky-talk. I go to the promo, we come back and we look at the issue, and kind of discuss as we go through the story. Instead, I'm going to break down the plot a bit, and then go to the promo, and then we're going to do our discussion. This way, uh, this time around, I can speak more freely, discuss a bit more, but more mainly it's just the way the notes fell this week. It was an odd week. Sorry about that. And of course, my focus on the show remains on the discussion of the issue more than the breakdown. And it remains that. Having said that, this week's issue it marks our first Daredevil story to not be written by Stan Lee. Roy Thomas took over writing duties with issue 50, and Gene Colan stayed aboard, and that meant you really noticed no difference in the stories. And that's not to say Roy Thomas didn't write great stories. I love Roy Thomas to death, more on his uh, All-Star Squadron than this, but when in doubt... Roy Thomas would always consult Stan Lee. He would always kind of follow in Stan Lee's footsteps and stick with that house style at this time. And Thomas was able to match Lee's tone and story structure. Daredevil number 57 was the October 1969 issue, and it pays off some moderately long-running plot threads in the book itself. And I'm going to keep you up to, bre- up to speed. These threads included Karen returning to Nelson and Murdoch, after we saw her leave last time. Uh, the villain Star Saxon found out Daredevil's true identity. Also, Foggy successfully ran for a district attorney and brought Karen with him as his personal secretary in that endeavor. In response to his secret identity being known by one of his enemies, Daredevil successfully faked Matt Murdock's death in a plane crash, leaving the world and Karen convinced that he was gone for good. A grieving Karen took some time off to head back to her hometown of Fagan Corners, Vermont, which is every bit as creepy as the name implies. And upon arriving at the town, Karen was accosted by the glowing, ghostly form of Death's Head, a skull-faced villain who rides an equally skeletal steed. No harm came to Karen, but she was scared out of her wits. However, unknown to her, Daredevil decided to pursue her to reveal his secret and ask her to marry him, to really put it out on the table. So in issue 56, he begins to trail her using Foggy's employee files, which is a little bit scary to think about. And on top of finding her hometown, they also learn that Karen's father is Paxton Page, inventor of the destructive Cobalt Bomb. But Paxton Page never released the secrets of the bomb, even under contempt of Congress, and retreated to his home to live as an outcast. And Daredevil got to Fagin Corners, where he, too, ran afoul of Death's Head. Overcome by the villain, issue 56 ended with Death's Head putting his skull mask on a tied-up Daredevil and placing the unarmed man without fear on his steed, but for sending the horse and our hero charging towards some cops, which brings us up to speed for Daredevil 57. Uh, just a quick look at the cover, which is by Gene the Dean Colon, and is pretty straightforward. In a graveyard, Matt peels back his mask to reveal his face and identity to Karen Page. It doesn't bury the lead. It's the biggest, most relevant event in this issue, and that's that Matt reveals a secret to Karen, but not before a lot of action, in the second half at least, of a story entitled In the Midst of Life. Picking up, Daredevil is trapped in Death's Head's costume, tied down his skeletal horse, which isn't a skeleton horse, but actually a regular horse painted with radioactive material that makes its skin translucent. 
but semantics. Daredevil is charging towards the cops who have their guns drawn, and Daredevil manages to slip out of the rope and falls off the horse, hurting his shoulder. He falls off the horse. But the cops do help him and pull the skull mask off, expecting old man Dithers, who runs the haunted amusement park, but they find Daredevil. Finally free, Daredevil asks the police to take him to the Page House, a giant mansion that looks like the Munsters reside there. Later, back at the Page household, Karen gets a call from Foggy and Willie Lincoln, who ask when she will be heading home to New York. Karen plays it off as if all is well, based on Daredevil's orders, because it's better that nobody else knows what's going on. As I stated, Karen's father is missing, and Death's Head has been running people away from the house left and right, and then there's the odd part. Death's Head wears a mask that is based on an Aztec skull that was in a British museum. This mask used to give Karen horrible nightmares as a child, so it comes from her past. And as Karen frets about her missing father, Daredevil calmly and smoothly pulls back a curtain to reveal that Garth, the family butler, has been eavesdropping on this whole conversation. Garth plays it off as if he was just hesitating and wondering if he should enter the room, and Garth is dismissed for the evening, but later that night, as everyone else is sleeping, Karen spots Garth sneaking out of the house and trails him. Garth goes to the old bridge and crosses a field, making his way to an old mill where he enters. And Karen also enters. She sees that Garth is carrying a pistol, and stranger yet, the mill is filled with advanced scientific equipment, and it all reeks of evil. Karen sneaks up on the armed Garth with a wooden plank in hand, but Garth rolls around and shoots his gun, shattering the plank to splinters. Daredevil comes swinging into the mill, knocking the crap out of Garth, and he barely has a moment to retract the grappling line back into his billy club before Death's Head arrives, cackling like a madman. Death's Head states that his horse died from the transparent paint, and he begins to form a huge fireball, which Daredevil knows he can dodge, but can't deflect it from Karen with his injured shoulder. Can't do both. So Daredevil uses the cable of his billy club to grab Death's Head's wrist, causing the villain to lose his balance and topple over the railing of the ledge. Daredevil and Death's Head grapple back on the catwalk, and Death's Head knocks Daredevil back to the floor right by the vat of molten cobalt. With Daredevil in a vulnerable position, Death's Head activates the machinery to dump the vat's contents onto Daredevil, but when Karen rushes to Daredevil's side in the path of the molten cobalt, Death's Head sweeps down, pushes her, and also Daredevil, out of the path. But the cobalt pours all over Death's Head, killing him. Daredevil removes the skull mask of the corpse, and it is revealed, as Daredevil expected, that Death's Head was actually Paxton Page, Karen's father. He had to begin to experiment again, and the radioactive material drove him bat-crazy. And Garth? Garth was a secret government agent sent to watch over and protect Paxton. Great job, Garth. Too soon? Later, as Paxton is laid to rest in a cemetery on a rainy day, Daredevil watches from afar until the funeral is over. He asks Karen to remove his mask, which she does, and he stands revealed, explaining that as the issue closes, he is Matt Murdock, and he is alive. And Matt Murdock is Daredevil. And that is the basic breakdown of Daredevil number 57, which brings us to a podcast promo break. When we come back, discussion and analysis of Daredevil number 57. You like cheap comic books, right? Well, I'm Professor Allen. And I talk about cheap comic books on the Quarterbin Podcast. In every episode, I'll dissect a single comic from my collection, as long as I paid no more than 25 cents for the issue. Forget about $4 new comics that you can read in four minutes, or crossover events that can cost 100 bucks to collect. Join me in the Quarterbin, where even bad comics are a bargain, and good ones are a steal. The Quarterbin Podcast is part of the Relatively Geeky Podcast Network. Visit us 
at relativelygeekypodcast.blogspot.com or search Relatively Geeky or Quarterbin Podcast on iTunes. I guarantee it'll be worth every penny. And we're back. In a lot of ways, this was not an average issue of Daredevil, and that begins with the cover itself. It telegraphs the issue's big reveal, and by telegraphs it, I mean that it's right there, replicated directly from the scene in the issue itself, pretty much verbatim. In a time before the internet, before magazines like Wizard as well, this may have flown under the radar, and readers may have been pretty much balked at this. How many Superman covers had Lois discovering Superman's Clark Kent, only to have that yanked away by the end of the issue? It's a big psych. This also feels very much aimed specifically at fans of the character itself, rather than new or casual readers. Because, and I hate to say it, most Marvel readers may have had a vague idea of Daredevil at best. And Daredevil has always been... He possesses a sect of fans, and they're devout But he has, to date, never been the top dog of the Marvel Universe. He's a second stringer. He's the top of the second stringer. And I don't say that to malign the character. But it is what it is, and that's something fans have learned to live with. If a high-swinging character is needed, typically that role goes to Spider-Man. Especially during this time, when the comic was always selling enough to make a profit, but not making Spidey's money. The colors really sell this cover. And I like this rendition of the scene more than what we get within the book. And maybe that's paper quality... not sure. But the issue opens to this glorious splash, with Daredevil in real trouble under the Death's Head costume. The mood is spooky, which is a saving grace for the issue as a whole. Now, I mentioned the origins of it. Death's Head has a really weird-looking, cobbled-together costume, because the body looks like it's wrapped in mummy bandages, and he's wearing a headless horseman cloak, like he's from the 1700s, but the head is covered by a, a skull mask that is Aztec style. It's very ornate, and that's because uh, he's from the, the Virginia Aztecs. You know, their calendar only went up to the release of the Thriller album in 1984. But no, to be serious, he's not the most visually cool design. For this story, he plays correctly into the Sleepy Hollow vibe that the story has, but the mishmash is very noticeable. It's not jarring, it's just to the point of being jarring. In issue 56, when we first got a look at Death's Head, uh, the guy looked weird. There's no reasoning for the different design aspects. Luckily, we do get an explanation here. Death's Head is like a cowboy hat away from being on an Iron Maiden cover. And it's up to you to decide the merit of that. The skeleton horse, oddly, makes me think of the 80s cartoon Bravestar, which isn't quite accurate because that horse was robotic and it did have a skull head. I know I've said this before. I don't much care for Daredevil stories that don't take place in an urban environment, and I stand by that. And to me, it doesn't matter if it's New York, because it could be San Francisco. I've read a lot of Daredevil stories in San Francisco. For me, as a general baseline rule, and this can apply to Batman and to some extent Spider-Man as well, the only jungle I want to see these characters in is a jungle of concrete. Because when you take away the skyscrapers and the flagpoles, all the familiar trappings of Daredevil's backdrop, I tend to kind of check out. And sure, Daredevil can swing a billy club from a tree or leap through a quaint mountain town, but my palate can't wrap my mind around that. And I don't know if that puts me into fair weather territory or closed-minded, but it is what it is. Or maybe I just know what I like when I see it, and I stick to that. Either way, the odds were stacked against me liking this issue. But when I plucked up this issue, my knee-jerk reaction was that I'd made a terrible decision. I needed to dive back into the back issue bins, choose something different. However, when I did a first read-through of this issue, 
I ended up enjoying it a lot more than I expected. I just decided to run with it. It's different from most of the stories that we have covered or will be covering. There's a lot that I want to say about the major event and the issue. That's your first warning. A little mini rant is coming, so batten down the hatches. Coming back to my thoughts a little bit, getting back on track. I read this issue the first time through uh, from the Essential Daredevil Volume 3 during a slow workday, along with most of the Roy Thomas issues up to this point. The Gene Colan art is moody, and what could have been a lame throwaway issue is redeemed by sheer Halloween tones. Now, I say this with full disclosure, I was reading this in October on an overcast evening, so that timing may have had a bit to do in terms of my first impressions. Even then, enjoying this story as a reading experience, I could have done with a bit more Daredevil dervish and less Wild West stunt spectacular in this opening. Now, as I mentioned, Foggy has made a successful bid and become the district attorney. Willie Lincoln, uh, who you've probably some of you have heard of, some of you haven't, he was a former cop who was blinded while in the war in Vietnam and became a friend of Daredevil. This happened when Daredevil was doing some work with the USO overseas. And yeah, I know it felt as weird to read that as I as it did for me to say that. Matt helped Willie find new purpose and became his friend, and Willie sticks around for a little while, especially to help with the villainy of Crime Wave. Don't worry, he's pretty forgettable. And by help, I mean Willie accidentally breaks into the case by falling down a shaft and finding Crime Wave's hidden lair. It was nice to touch base a bit with New York, but we're quickly back to the spooky ambiance of Fagin Corners. Come on, a big estate, a missing father, Karen's matriarch, the quiet and suspicious butler. What we have here is an awesome mystery dinner theater with a superhero. All that's missing is the overly dramatic organ music and the smell of popcorn and spilled soda, and we have an awesome horror movie experience. It's a lot like dropping Daredevil right in the middle of a Hammer horror movie, and I found myself thinking, I should not be liking this based on my normal preferences. This is not what I want from Daredevil. Granted, the ongoing format of a comic book has been compared to soap operas. I don't necessarily want dark shadows on my Daredevil page. And yet, here I was, enjoying the story, and I think the lion's share of the credit goes to Gene Colan. I mentioned last week that I've been reading Tomb of Dracula, which was, once again, a full disclosure, maybe influencing my outlook on this. Maybe I'm craving some Hammer Horror-style uh, material? Not sure. Yet we're dealing with a comic book about a man who dresses up in a devil costume, which is a bit of a macabre image. Which brings me to my next point, Death's Head, resembling a nightmare that Karen had as a child. Kinda makes the scenario pretty obvious, doesn't it? But what does the nightmare say about Karen as a child? What kind of twisted stuff did she experience? I, I want to take a moment to no-prize this, if you don't mind. Because Karen's dad perfected the cobalt bomb, which is sort of a real thing, at least in concept. It means Karen probably overheard her father talking about the potential consequences of the bomb. Maybe Karen even saw test footage, since it stated that he did perfect the cobalt bomb. That is the word used. And that footage included something really bad happening to a beast of the equine variety. And it's chilling to think about. And maybe it isn't even remotely implied in the comic itself, but I don't think I'm reaching too far to come up with that one. And this is, this is kind of a good time to start talking about it. What with Karen Page's childhood trauma on the table, perhaps seeing some test footage of a horse getting blown apart. She's been going through a lot. And I know, I know, and, and I'm going to address this a little bit more. I've been rough on Karen. With all of her vapid, shallow, pining, and self-centered attitude, but... Mike Murdoch appears and then is killed, I'm using air quotes, and now Matt appears to be dead, as in the man that she is in love with, her former employer. Now, she's just trying to get away and wrap her head around all of this horrible stuff, and her dad is missing, probably dead, and the jury on top is that her childhood nightmares are literally coming to life, and you have a crappy week 
to be Karen Page. Of course, Karen will have a lot of crappy weeks, and some of them are her, are her own fault, but that's for later. Heroin is a hell of a drug, kids. We also have an injured daredevil in the mix. He's walking around with his right arm barely usable, which I dig, because it brings him down a notch. It makes Death's Head a bit more of a challenge. And you know when a mystery is afoot, there's going to be a butler. Garth is no Tim Curry? I mean, Leslie Ann Warren would have been great as, as Karen's mom, and there's no room to throw Martin Mull in the mix. Whoa, 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 whoa. Back it up. I'm getting off on a tangent rather than a well-placed clue reference. Anyway, Garth is eavesdropping on the conversation, which should make him seem suspicious, but I think we all know a red herring when we see one, don't we, gang? Yet, what is with Garth heading to the old mill with a gun, is what I was asking myself. That part almost had me, I won't lie. Because I had discounted Garth, and then he was doing something legitimately shady, heading to the mill. However, I got distracted, I didn't think too much on that, so it never threw me completely because we have Karen following Garth on her own. Karen, you have a perfectly usable superhero sleeping in the guest bedroom. Would it be so hard to call out to Daredevil and say, Hey, uh, creepy butler sneak out of the house, you want to take a look at that? Oh well, if she did that, there wouldn't be any suspense, and up to this point we've not had a huge amount of that. I should, in fairness, point out that this issue started out with a bang, and then dissolved into talking heads. And now, at about the halfway point through the story, you haven't seen a lot of action at all. Outside of Daredevil getting out of the jam that he was in thanks to the cliffhanger of issue 56. Now that should be a complaint. I shouldn't be saying that I enjoy this issue because not a single relevant thing has happened at the halfway mark of the book. I believe the term would be snooze fest. I mean, halfway through the issue and Daredevil has managed to fall off a horse and chat it up at the page place. However, that halfway point is also where it picks up. And it just picks up the football runs it to the end zone, for good measure runs it back to the other team's goal line, does a dance like Cuba Gooding Jr. and Jerry Maguire, and everyone is told that Daredevil's going to Disney World. So the big revelation that Death said is Karen's father, as I said, it's telegraphed early on. There's not much of a reveal there. But it was lacking the Scooby-Doo bravado. Because Death said would have gotten away with it too if not for that meddling Daredevil. Anyway, what I'm doing is getting some of the small things out of the way, and then I want to talk about the douchebaggery of Matt Murdock. First, Daredevil's Billy Club. It can, from time to time, look like the retractable rod portion of a toilet paper dispenser, as in the bar that goes across that the tube hangs on. Seriously, next time you do your business, take a look at your toilet paper tube holder. It's a bit of a bigger version of that, but you basically have it. And I say that as a joke as well, but it's actually a good thing, because that comes from a detailed logical depiction of the Billy Club. The club is drawn to shown where it would join with the second half to make Matt's cane. And how easy would it be to simply draw a rod? No, colon makes sure that the weapon is plausible. But even saying that, I still see a toilet paper holder sometimes just extended. I wouldn't recommend using that in any Daredevil cosplay. Might be frowned upon. Um, while we, I mentioned Garth was a red herring, him being a secret agent was a fairly good twist. But I immediately had a flashback to Fletch Lives. Oh, crap. I just spoiled Fletch Lives, the greatest Chevy Chase opus ever made. I sincerely apologize. But as Chevy Chase movies go, Fletch Lives was a far inferior sequel to a really solid movie. True, the original had more solid tone, mixing the dramatic mystery with Chase's comedic acting. The sequel had Julianne Phillips instead of Gina Davis. And oh, whoa, okay, Dave, back it up. My mind just got tangled up in itself. Here I was trying to talk about Daredevil, and I got off on a Chevy Chase tangent. Sorry, Chevy Chase happens sometimes. Anyway, I kind of saw Garth coming because the government isn't going to let a man who made a cobalt bomb just go about his business. However, it wasn't right up in front of me because I didn't look at Paxton Page as the next Ted Kaczynski. Or the first Ted Kaczynski since we're dealing with something in the 60s. And I almost forgot to talk about the cobalt bomb as a concept. I am sorry. 
This is a real concept. I actually rolled my eyes when I heard the term cobalt bomb, but turns out, nope, real thing. Uh, the idea of a cobalt bomb was to make a bomb with a higher level of radiation. Basically, to drop a cobalt bomb is to go complete scorched earth, kill all life in the area with no hope of survival. If the explosion doesn't get you, the radiation will. Which means it would make the after effect of an atom bomb look like a sunny day at the park. This is scary stuff, which lends credence to my theory that Karen had nightmares stemming from something she overheard or accidentally seen in relation to her father's work. Either that or the cobalt radiation caused Karen to have the nightmares. After all, it drove a brilliant scientist to becoming the embodiment of an Aztec skeleton monster. You know, that old chestnut. I'm not entirely on board with the explanation of how Paxton Page became Death's Head, but I'll give the flimsiness a pass. It's meant to be a means to an end, and it kind of had to go that way. Because when you need a glowing skull-faced villain with a demon horse, what are you going to do? And I also, and I say this without joking, did Paxton Page ever meet Brian Banner? Because this could fuel a Hulk Daredevil crossover, the two fathers working on a project together, developing different forms of mental illness. Mark Wade probably doesn't listen to this show, even though he writes both Hulk and Daredevil. And the four of you who are listening probably don't have the Marvel offices on speed dial. If you do, you might drop that little nugget. Now, actually, as mentioned, I've been mean to Karen Page. I have found myself understanding Karen more and more and being a little bit more sympathetic towards her. She grew up with a father who worked an intensely secretive job. Probably didn't have a lot of time for her. Probably traveled quite a bit. When he was around, there was a good chance he didn't pay her a lot of attention. There was distance between them. There was always this cobalt bomb between them. And when he retired, he became a recluse. Parallel that with Matt a bit. Because this is a man with what some would see as a disability. In Karen's mind, that disability causes a similar distance between them. She couldn't fix her dad, because that had already settled in. It's, it had taken its toll on, its, on his mind. But maybe pushing Matt to get his eyes fixed was a way to remove in Matt the stumbling block that she couldn't remove from her father. There's no statement of this in the issue itself, but after years of listening to Loveline, I kind of pick up on tricks from Dr. Drew. Oh man, that would be a great Loveline call. Karen in Vermont, you're on with Loveline. And then Karen beats around the bush until Dr. Drew finally says they're out of time, and as soon as she's off the air, lays all of Karen's crap uh, out on the table. Well, that's pretty much every episode of Loveline. Okay. Having said some terrible things about Karen, and now seeing how her childhood went and how the relationship with her father may have played into the dynamic between her and Matt, do I feel that I was out of line? A little, but not really. Knowing the origin of, of all of this does not excuse the method of Karen's madness. Like Betty Brant, Karen would do well to think before she speaks, since there's a lot of emotion funneling into her words. Matt, in all fairness, could definitely do the same. But Matt does plenty of talking in this issue, plenty of revelations, and he's not innocent. This is one couple who could benefit from a go-between to sort of help sort out their feelings. And as far as that, I'm ready to get into it. The 800-pound gorilla in the room, the big relevant bit of this issue, Matt reveals his secret to Karen Page. This is a game-changer. It's a big event. After 56 and 9 tenths issues, an annual Spider-Man crossover, the whole Moonlighting-style will-they-or-won't-they thing with Matt's alter ego getting between them, Matt finally lays it out on the table. This should be an awesome moment, like Clark Kent opening his dress shirt to reveal the familiar S-Shield. However, for the first time on this program, and probably the only time, I want to side with Karen Page. Because Matt Murdock is being a douche. 
From now on, he might as well be known as the Summer's Eve without fear, or instead of Hornhead, call him Massengillhead. I don't know. Make up your own funny name. Karen's dad just died after being driven insane and becoming a supervillain. Not only that, she had to get out of the city to get her head together after Matt was assumed dead. Let's add the fact that Mike Murdoch was also killed, once again, air quotes. With all of that on her shoulders, Matt decides to unburden his soul on her. And I know what you're thinking, and you're right. By doing this, he's opening up and creating a channel of intimacy to help her through this hard time. However, while there is some validity to that, let's call it what it is. Let's say what Matt's really saying with this move. Here's the, how the conversation is really going. Hey, Karen. Yes, Matt. I want you to know that I've been lying to you since the day we met. And I pretended to be my own twin. Then I convinced you that the twin died on top of that. I pushed you away, faked my own death, causing you a lot of pain. Now I want to confess all of this while we are standing only feet away from your father's open grave. Now with Matt saying that, he is saying also that he doesn't give a flying about Karen as a human being with human emotions. This revelation could have waited. Or he could have eased Karen into this. He could have waited much longer than five minutes after her father's funeral. The grave is still open. To head off the inevitable argument, Matt is telling her that he is alive, and through that, Mike is alive, meaning that not all of her grieving has been for people who are actually dead. To paraphrase that great bard Meatloaf, two out of three ain't bad? No. I'm sorry, sirs and madams. That means that Matt is also admitting that her grieving has been in vain for two out of three of these people. He put her through that for nothing. And I know being Daredevil is important, but nothing for Karen. I'm sorry, that's terrible. That doesn't even take into account the fact that Matt chooses to tell Karen over Foggy. You know, his long-suffering best friend. The guy who has been there to help him grieve for his own father. I'm sorry, Foggy deserved to be the person Matt confided in. And I know I'm going off on a different tangent. I'm just going off on a Matt Murdock douche train. In fact, honestly, Foggy should have known from Jump Street. But Matt was thinking with the little horn head in his pants, and he tells the pretty blonde girl. This will be a theme. But knowing this secret has consequences. What do I mean? Let's step out of the story a bit and look at Matt and Daredevil as a lover. Not his prowess, which I'm sure is more than ample and above board. What I mean is, Matt's love interests don't really fare well once he becomes a factor. Don't believe me? Okay. Let me get some character witnesses. Let's ask Electra. Oh. Heather Glenn. Oh. Typhoid Mary. Ah. And let's not, for the love of all that's sacred, forget to ask Mila Donovan how she feels on the topic. Daredevil should probably learn to be single for the sake of the people that he loves. I say that with a complete straight face. Is this something to lay on the character as a concept or on the writers who keep doing terrible things to the women in Daredevil's life? Where is that line drawn? Where do I the podcasters step out of the stories and point the finger where it belongs. The answer? When the one to blame becomes clear because are these results of editorial mandates saying Daredevil needs to remain single? Was it the need of the writer to pile more crap on Matt and try to add more pathos? That's always going to be unclear. We don't know what happens behind the scenes. It's hard to blame a character in one context, but within the actions on the page itself, Matt is a core component to bad things happening to his love interests. It's a tough statement to make. Especially when we are talking about the results of a script, editorial notes, penciling, inking, coloring, printing before it becomes a book to read, before it becomes a thing, a tangible thing. Regardless of the blame, these things do happen in the story. They range from bad to horrific. They're part of the tapestry of Daredevil. 
on my Daredevil playlist, which is the music I listen to when I'm writing notes for this just to get into the mood, I put the Creedence Clearwater Revival song Have You Ever Seen the Rain on it. Beyond bringing some Lebowski elements to my hornhead music, it also brings a picture in my head of Matt in his, in his apartment in the brownstone on a rainy afternoon. There are no lights on. Instead, Matt's quietly walking around the brownstone, thinking about all the lost loves of his life with a heavy heart. I know it's odd. I don't know why that plays in my head. But the moment I heard that song, that's what it was. And this, this whole burden of, of the loves of his life, meeting horrible fates, was kind of brought up in the first three issues of the Lee Weeks written Daredevil Dark Knights story, which is an anthology title. Uh, Daredevil is trying to deliver this heart for this young girl for a transplant he's up against time it's winter and in his head he is seeing these people this is his way to redeem so I, i'm just it's a bad thing for daredevil but then you get stories like that one where it tackles it and you have a richer character is it good is it bad i'm not sure we're gonna see a little more of that as we go along maybe a little bit of both column a column b i'm not sure i don't want to end the episode on a downer note so i'm going to add this matt revealing his identity to karen ends up backfiring on him in a big big way one of the greatest Daredevil stories of all time hinges on this issue. And the revelation causes a lot of problems between Matt and Karen. Uh, Matt, by the way, uses Foggy's position as DA of New York to smooth over the faking of his death and goes to work at the DA's office. Karen tries to hold Matt to his promise to settle down with her and quit being Daredevil. I don't know why Matt can't. What is it in Matt that makes him unable to let it go? Whatever it is, it leads Karen to leave New York. She ends up going to California, where she falls into an acting gig. It's a happy, happy world. Everybody ends up happy. But it's a very important moment, a very odd story. Not one that is a, a one-off I would have expected to like. And yet, at the end, I liked everything but the big revelation. Now, ultimately, even though Matt's kind of being a douche, this is a move that had to happen at some point. For good or for bad. Um, it does, of course, lead to that story that I mentioned, Born Again. Still, I ended up feeling... I ended up feeling frustrated with Matt for doing this to Karen. Or maybe I should end up being frustrated with Roy Thomas, who couldn't eliminate some of the talking heads, abbreviate the story a little bit, so he could have added a bit of time passing. Maybe they're back in New York, and that's when Daredevil reveals this. Either way, it happened. It's on the table. And Karen's going to become a little bit more scarce as we go along. Um, overall, mention I like the story. It's a... Not one of the classics, not one that you really would rush out and look at, but if you do want to take a look at it, it's reprinted in an Essential Daredevil Volume 3. It is not on the Marvel Digital Unlimited. So now, now, now that we've kind of had uh, my little rant on Matt Murdock's douchebaggery, I open up my email inbox and read your missives. This is going to be one of my favorite parts of the show. We actually have several emails this week. Let's see what you fine folks have sent me. Our first email is from Russell Bragg. The subject is episode two, When Hornhead Met Webhead. Russell writes, Hello Dave, you did say I could call you that. I did indeed. Great episode as always. I first came across this story in the Marvel comic pocketbook series, The Amazing Spider-Man number three. My brother was a bigger Spider-Man fan than I was, and I would look at his Spider-Man comics when he bought them. The first Spider-Man Daredevil story I remember reading was when Spider-Man turned into a lizard creature. I don't remember what happened or why Daredevil was in the story, but I remember a lizard Spider-Man. Well, you can't forget a lizard Spider-Man, can you? I always appreciate the history lessons you bring before you give a synopsis. It really puts the issue you cover in perspective for me. Before I close, one question. Why do you think Daredevil has never had his own animated series? I think they could make a great cartoon with a character such as Daredevil. I sure did use the word Spider-Man Daredevil a lot. Better end here. Continued success, Russell Bragg. Actually, Russell, 
Daredevil almost became an animated series. Uh, this would have been in the 80s. Um, this show would have teamed him with a dog called Lightning the Super Dog. And apparently, I mean, this was greenlit at ABC. And the legend goes that somebody ticked off a higher up at ABC and the red light went up pretty quick. <laughs> um, I think the reason that was never circled back around to was Marvel's animated stylings went through this weird dry spell in the 80s as Daredevil was kind of coming into his own. Um, he was probably a little too dark for Saturday mornings at that point. Um, and of course, this is all pre-Batman, the animated series, or alongside it at points, but went through a dry spell because you had the Spider-Man is Amazing Friends, which was fairly successful. You also had the Incredible Hulk, which ran for a season and wasn't as embraced. Um, and then that kind of crashed for a while. You get to the 90s, when we did see successful animated series, you had a Fantastic Four series that that didn't go well, as well alongside an Iron Man series that didn't go well. However, Spider-Man and the X-Men were, were just knocking it out of the park on Fox. Daredevil fell between these schools. You have X-Men and Spider-Man. They're, well, X-Men was the greatest selling comic in the world at that time. Spider-Man was Spider-Man. Daredevil didn't quite match up to that, so he would have been in, looked at as the class of FF and Iron Man. What that means is he wasn't viewed as something that would be successful. So Daredevil almost had his chance. Just one little wrong thing knocked it off. Um, I do think I would rather see a Daredevil direct-to-DVD animated movie. Because I, uh, I really think he would benefit from the PG-13. You could play with some of the aspects of Daredevil that are more adult rather than Saturday morning fare. However, I don't see that on the agenda as they're working on the Daredevil live-action series, which I don't know that I've talked about on this show. Um, there's not a lot to talk about. Daredevil is coming to a 13-episode Netflix series. Um, at this point, we don't have any casting or anything like that. But he will be accompanying Luke Cage, Iron Fist, and Jessica Jones. And then there will be a miniseries called The Defenders that will team all of them up. I will su simply say I am excited about this. I am very excited, yet at the same time very hesitant so that's why I have not really touched on it a bit. Plus, I record these episodes so far in advance that to mention it wouldn't be news. By the time something relevant came out, it's going to be up to about three weeks before I get it on the air. So I, I do try to avoid some of the more current events, but it is what it is. Uh, before I close out, I do have a new iTunes review. It's a five-star review, which makes me a champion. Um, it is entitled Magnus Approves by His Excellency Magnus. And Trentus Magnus of Trentus Magnus Punches Reality writes... Without a doubt, this is the finest Daredevil podcast J. David Weeder, but you can call him Dave, has hosted this month. His points are accurate, witty, and concise. His format is unique in how quickly he covered the first year's worth of Daredevil comic books before he begins branching off into other territories. There are a lot of Daredevil podcasts on the internet. There are a lot of J. David Weeder, but you can call him Dave, podcasts on the internet. And there are a lot of podcasts hosted by J. David Weeder, but you can call him Dave on the internet. But for my money, this is the finest Daredevil podcast hosted by J. David Weeder, but you can call him Dave. Very highly recommended, five stars. Magnus, but you can call me Magnus. And I shall call you Magnus. As mentioned, Trentus Magnus, once again, hosts Trentus Magnus Punches Reality over at the Two True Freaks Network, which you should be visiting after you're done with the show. Which is very quickly, because we are at the end of another episode of Dave's Daredevil Podcast. Next time, the great love of Matt's life that didn't get a sigh to the chest, kill herself or go bat crazy. The Black Widow debuts in Daredevil issue 81. Pull it out of your long box. That is just, that sounded terrible. That has sounded horrible. But the Black Widow, just seven short days. Until then, remember, justice may be blind, but it can see in the dark. Never far away, whenever danger's near. There's half
Dave's Daredevil Podcast is a Nat World production. The show's archives can be found at daredevilpodcast.com. To subscribe to the show, you can visit iTunes where you can leave a review, which helps the show get noticed. Or there's a handy RSS link at the website to use the podcatcher of your choice. The show is released every Sunday on all formats and emails are welcome. The address is dave at daredevilpodcast.com. While you're at it, why not friend the show on Facebook? It's easily found by searching for Dave's Daredevil Podcast or just Daredevil Podcast if you're into the whole brevity thing. The important note I'd like to make is I don't make any money off of Daredevil or any Marvel property because they are copyrighted characters that are fully owned by Marvel Comics and their parent company, Disney. I just do this to entertain, so any and all music or sound clips are for entertainment purposes only, and the copyright still belongs to the copyright holder. No infringement is intended. So please, don't sue me. It's all in good fun, and it's all for the love of comics and the love of Daredevil. Thank you so much for listening, and I will talk to you next week. Oh, what is right?